scripture lesson for this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Chapter 12. I have gotten this wrong every time. (laughs) Chapter 12. This is Samuel's speech to the people of Israel when he is preparing to anoint their first king. Listen for the word of God. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to you in all that you have said to me, and have set a king over you. See, it is the king who leads you now. I am old and gray, but my sons are with you. I have led you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from the hand of anyone. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, take your stand, so that I may enter into judgment with you before the Lord. I will declare to you all the saving deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your ancestors. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your ancestors cried to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought forth your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of King Jabin of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried to the Lord. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and rescued you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. But when you saw that King Nahash of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, though the Lord your God was your king. See, here is the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and heed his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not heed the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, take your stand. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. All the people said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we may not die, 
because we have added to all our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after useless things that cannot profit or save, because they are useless. For the Lord will not cast away his people for, the, for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these nervous but hopeful hearts of ours. In the name of Jesus Christ, we make our prayer. Amen. Most of you know that I love following elections, particularly at the presidential level. My earliest memory was the Nixon-Kennedy election. The first time I voted was the Carter-Ford election. And in 2004, I got to participate in both the Iowa caucuses in the winter and then vote in Virginia after my move here in the fall, which I guess was legal. Being around so many of you who work in, report on, do polling for, or analyze politics is one of the many bonuses that I receive from serving at Westminster. I feel like a kid who loves baseball and gets to sit in the dugout nearly every Sunday. But like for many of you, this has been a stressful and lengthy election in which at times I have been nervous and apprehensive. A young adult who joined our church in 2014 and then a few months later moved back to Wisconsin to work in politics was quoted in the Washington Post this week as saying, at this point, I think most Wisconsin voters would rather have a root canal, a colonoscopy, or, and this is the tough one, see the Vikings in the Super Bowl <laughs> rather than hear one more word about Trump or Clinton. She was expressing, perhaps with more imagery than most, a view of a large segment of the American population. But in addition to elections, I love as well the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments which our ordination vows in the Presbyterian Church affirm to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to us. Unlike some topics on which scriptures are silent, the scriptures taken as a whole 
have something to say about politics. And they can provide from pers some perspective that might shed light for us as Christians and voters in the United States of America in 2016. What I want to do in the first part of this sermon is to give a scriptural overview. And then in the second part, to draw some specific conclusions. The overview comes from an article that is entitled, Biblical Ambivalence to Government. It's found in the New Interpreter Study Bible, which is the Bible we use for the Old and New Testament courses that I teach here at Westminster. We happen to be dealing with this very topic, this passage, in the class tonight. But that doesn't give those of you all who are in the class license to skip tonight. <laughs> As the title suggests, the view of government in the Bible is ambivalent, meaning of two minds. Initial biblical portrayals of government are negative. The story of the Tower of Babel shows that human societies and organizations can grow to such proportions that they invariably try to compete with God. The first actual government that is encountered in the Bible is that of Egypt, a government against which God sends plagues because its leader, Pharaoh, has used his power to take Abram's wife, Sarai, into his own home because of her beauty. In the first confession of faith that the people of Israel make, their Apostles' Creed, so to speak, they affirm their belief that God has acted on their behalf against an oppressive Egyptian government by freeing them from slavery. God acts to save the people from institutionalized government-sanctioned evil. But the Bible has positive image of, images of government as well. Early on, God tells the people of Israel, You shall be for me a priestly and a holy nation. The Torah permits the establishment of a monarchy in, in Israel, so long as the king is prudent and law-abiding. In the book of Judges, charismatic leaders of loosely confederated tribes are God's agents in defeating the people's enemies. And they are individually called and empowered by the Spirit of the Lord to assist and rescue the people when they cry out for help. In addition, these positive portrayals of government come during a time in which there is no military draft and no taxes. Ah, the good old days. But even the period of the judges has negative aspects. Not all tribes answer the calls to battle, which undermines national unity. Some judges seek to set up a hereditary system, leaving the choice of a leader to ancestry rather than to the spirit of the Lord. And most judges prove to be violent and flawed. 
leading the narrator of that 200-year period in Israel's history to conclude in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A statement that describes but does not prescribe the way the people of Israel are at that time a period of moral and political anarchy. In their pain and confusion, the people of Israel look around and they see that all these other nations around them are ruled by a king. And so they say, we want a king to be like other nations. Samuel, their judge at the time, doesn't think that's a good idea. Neither does God. But like the parent of a teenager yearning for more freedom, God says, let them have their king. So Samuel anoints Saul, and that doesn't go too well. And he anoints David, and that goes well for a while. And then follows Solomon. And that brings a beautiful temple and a great tradition of wisdom. But when there isn't a succession plan in place, and when there's too much intermingling of marriage and foreign gods and religions, The nation splits into separate kingdoms, which leads to 400 years of exile and dominance by foreign powers. Israel eventually is able to return to their land and rebuild their temple, which had been destroyed. But they don't rule the land for very long. And by the time Christ is born, the people of God live under Roman rule. Jesus knows this, of course, and while some want him to lead an insurrection or a revolution against Roman authority, he refuses to define his messiahship in such political or military terms. After Jesus' death, Paul takes the message of Jesus' resurrection all throughout the Greco-Roman world. Paul, too, is aware that he and his fellow Christians live as a minority under a foreign government. He essentially urges Christians to be good citizens and to keep themselves quiet so that they can avoid both persecution and notice, or notice and persecution. Paul even advises them to submit to the government because he says there is no authority except from God. And yet in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, government is depicted as a beast that comes from Satan and persecutes God's faithful ones. So from this rapid survey of 66 books and 2,200 pages of Scripture, this article concludes the following. The Bible makes a realistic assessment of human government. Government provides protection and stability. It depends on and demands support and loyalty, even when it is autocratic. Its gifts are precious enough 
to seem God-given. Its failings are serious enough to seem otherwise. The ultimate danger, says this article, for any government is that it will see itself as supreme and demand worship and make claims on individuals that are only appropriate for God to make. Now, I've lived with this article since it was published in 2003, and I've read it several times during that period. And I support these conclusions, but in addition, I've drawn some of my own. If we believe in a God who is active in history, as I do, and if we believe in a world that has been created in the image of God and yet has fallen away from that image, again as I do, it is inevitable to believe that God will be involved in the messy affairs of humanity, including governance and politics and matters of state. And it follows that Christ, as God incarnate, God in the flesh, will be similarly involved. In addition, unless we have a view that God is so spiritual as to be above it all, God will of necessity be involved and expect us to be involved. Thus, it is impossible for us to detach our faith from our lives as citizens participating in the community, in the government under which we live, according to the freedom that we have, according to the laws that are in place, and when necessary, according to the resistance that is called for. What this means, among other things, is that when we leave this sanctuary and go into the world, go into the voting booth, or serve our nation or community at any level, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, God with us, does not remain back here in this holy space praying, singing hymns, reading or reciting scripture. Through the Holy Spirit, God goes with us into the world, into all of our responsibilities within it. Now, if I may take one more step biblically that will lead us then to our present situation. When the people of Israel clamor for a king and God reluctantly agrees to grant their request, their leader at the time, the Judge Samuel, makes a profound and beautiful speech to the people before anointing Saul as Israel's first king. It is that speech that Casey read almost in its entirety. In that speech, the key phrase that Samuel delivers to the people is this. If you will fear the Lord and serve him 
and heed his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not heed the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. In this speech, which is wise on many levels, Samuel one time calls both the people and the king to be faithful and promises that it will go well with them. He twice warns that if the people are not faithful, both the people and the king will suffer. And Samuel once implies that if the king joins the people in unfaithfulness or vice versa, both the king and the people will be swept away. But in this speech, the onus is more clearly placed and weighted toward the people. And this is in a society that is not nearly as democratic as ours. Even though God instructs Samuel to anoint a king, the people's responsibility does not end with the anointing ceremony. In the final analysis, both they and their leader must be responsible. Now that's the end of Bible 101. Now to America 2016. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, as you have, I cannot wait until this election is over. Only three more months, three more weeks, three more days, three more minutes. Soon it will be November 9th. It will be a relief when it's over. But on Wednesday, November 9th, the only thing that will have changed in our country is that we will have a few more knowns than we have now. When recounts and challenges, if there are any, are completed, we will know who will be inaugurated on January 20th. We will know which party will control the Senate. We will know which party will control the House of Representatives. But more importantly, we will know this as well. Our Constitution will not have been amended. The three branches of our government will still be planted as equal and mature trees standing tall within sight of one another on the same prairie, rooted in the same soil, buffeted to be sure by winds and lightning and insects from within. But as long as we feed and water them in such a way that their roots do not become too intertangled, and as long as we prune them in such a way that their branches don't grow together into one, they will remain 
separate and equal. A division of power and authority, of checks and balances that is built into our heritage and has served and enabled us as the people of this nation to answer the charge that Samuel gave Israel. If you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will go well. Furthermore, everyone in this room and in our nation who is blessed enough to wake up on November the 9th will still have a mind, will still have a conscience, will still have an ability to speak and to write and to be involved in whatever way as a citizen. The responsibility that we bear on November 9th is no different than the responsibility that we bear on November the 8th. If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. If you will do wickedly, you shall be swept away. You and your king. If I may reverse the words that Benjamin Franklin reportedly said to a woman as he was leaving Independence Hall following the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the word of hope, a republic, the word of caution, if you can keep it, the word of hope, you can keep it. Amen.